Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. We've talked a lot on this show about the role your mindset plays in your overall longevity. People with a positive outlook on life tend to to live longer lives, but you don't need to tip the scales too far here. Toxic positivity won't do you any favors, but practical optimism is how you want to proceed. Today, we have Dr. Sue Varma to explain how to strengthen your practical optimism muscles. She's a board-certified psychiatrist and a clinical assistant professor of psychiatry at NYU Langone Health. She was also the first medical director and attending psychiatrist to the World Trade Center Mental Health Program at NYU Langone, treating civilians and first responders in the aftermath of 9-11. Since then, she's learned more than a few things about how to cultivate incredible resilience and growth. We talk about manifesting purpose, social snacking, and so much more. You don't want to miss it. So practical optimism rather than just plain old optimism. Yes, So, you know, a lot of times people think of optimism as woo-woo, toxic positivity. And the difference is that practical optimism first acknowledges what you've been through and it validates your experience because grief and disappointment will hit all of us. And at the same time, it says, what can we do? How can we maximize and boost our sense of agency and confidence so that we can turn positive outlooks into positive outcomes. And that's where I think practical optimism differs. It's not just about thinking on the bright side. It's actually implementing actionable change so that you can deliver on the vision and the goals that are in your head into real life. So can you maybe walk us through a real world example of a situation where and compare the the practical optimism approach and contrast that to the just plain old simple optimism? Yes. Great question. Because, you know, a lot of times optimism, people who are optimistic can skew on the everything will work out and what we call the ostrich effect. Ostrich bury their hand in the sand and hope the problem will go away. An optimist might get a diagnosis from the doctor and they're like, okay, well, you know, you're, you're bordering with, you know, diabetes and cholesterol, your numbers. And an optimist might say on the, on the skewed positive side, it'll work itself out. I'll figure it out. Practical optimists say, all right, they're realistic. They're like, what can I do? What steps do I need to take? How am I changing the way I eat, the way I move? So they have the positivity of the optimists, but they have the practicality, the pragmatism. And then they say, if I'm not the expert, how do I get the help? What are the resources? So they're more willing to engage in problem solving because they're anticipating obstacles. So if somebody has to make a lifestyle modification, they don't leave it up to chance. They don't leave it up to whim. They don't leave it up to discipline. And I talk about this and the idea of how do you create good habits and the idea of automating them. And in problem solving, one of the P's of, of practical optimism is anticipating obstacles. So it's not just wishing and wanting and hoping. 
hope is both a noun and a verb. And the practical optimists are looking at the verb aspect of like, great, okay, I got this diagnosis or I'm about to, or whatever, fill in the blank. It could be whatever conundrum you're dealing with. But then they say in real time, yes, I'm acknowledging the feelings. I feel disappointed and sad. How did I let this happen to me? How did I let my health go in this example? And then they move past the negative feelings. They don't dwell. They don't ruminate, which is something that pessimists do. So optimism isn't enough. You also need to contend and actively challenge pessimism, which all of us are susceptible to. So what about in a situation where one has less control over the outcome? The way I tend to approach things when I'm in you know, a very clear headspace is there, there, there are things I can control and things I can't control. And when it's in my wheelhouse, I can control it. I tend to be a lot more action-oriented. Then there are curveballs that life throws me, which I, I really are out of my hands. And so how, how do you think about a situation where something is out of your control? Maybe it's not you who's facing something, but it's someone you care about and you don't really have an impact. How, how, do you, how would you approach that situation? It's really tricky when it is someone, let's say, that you, you care and you love. And a lot of times I see this in my practice where, let's say, I'm working with someone and they're like, I have a family member who is just really down or they're negative and they don't want to get help. Or, you know, I see this with a- aging parents of my patients. And they're like, my parent lives in a different state or country and I can't really help them. And I feel helpless. And I think the key there is to acknowledge what the feeling is that that's coming because it might be helplessness. Like, I don't know if that's what you feel in those situations. And then to say, you know, one of the things um, my parents would always say to me, and they have a little bit of an Eastern, we have an Eastern upbringing. Um, they would say to me, is this a problem to be solved or a truth to be accepted? And I feel like, you know, having grown up in both cultures, acceptance is very much an Eastern philosophy. And, and I feel like in the West, we, we struggle with that because we're very much of like, I can do and I should do. And it's hard for us to accept that there are going to be situations where we can't do anything. So I always say, if you're feeling helpless, if you're feeling demoralized, take a break and, and sit with it, distract yourself with positive things. But I'm not someone who likes to give up personally. So if if plan A doesn't work, I'm going to try plan B, C, D, all the way up to Z. And I totally get that that's not for everybody. So you have to also know yourself and say, how hard do I want to work? How And can I pivot in my goal, right? So if I'm not going to achieve X, Y, and Z, is it the time frame that needs to be adjusted? Is it my plan? Is it my goal? Is it the way that I'm perceiving it, my relationship to the problem? So, you know, it would really have to depend on the situation and how hard you're willing to work. And I always say, you don't have to stop. Sometimes you just need to pause and recalibrate and reassess and see what the options are. But it is hard. And I acknowledge that when you're working with someone else that you love and their health, you are very limited. And I've seen this in my own life. You know, I can be a physician, but the people in my life, if I want to help them get better, you know, they have to be on board and they have to be willing. Yeah, you know, you mentioned hope and and I've said on this show, ho- hope is not a strategy. But but here's the thing. I, I think I would say that when it's something that is directly in my control where I can be action-oriented and influence the outcome. However, when it's something that is out of my control, I do think hope you know, and the part part of this is because I was raised Christian. I, I would consider myself a spiritual person. That's where faith and hope come in when something is, you know, clearly out of my control. There's in control 
and I can impact that outcome and then out of my control where I have less influence or, or no influence over the outcome. And that's where hope and faith, I think, come in for me. Yes. And I love that, like what you just said, um, and the spirituality aspect, because we don't talk a- enough about it in in medicine, at least. But there's been a lot of studies that show that spirituality is helpful because it allows you, A, to not feel alone if you do have a belief in a higher power. And I think that's really important. And so much of our mental suffering and anguish come from feeling very isolated in our troubles. So A, recognizing the common humanity, that you're never alone in a problem, that other people struggle and suffer with what you're struggling with too. And B, feeling that there might be someone else who's got your back, whether it's the universe, whether it's a supreme being, a higher power, whatever you want to call it, whether it's a community, recognizing that you're not alone. And then also recognizing that you don't have the power to influence all outcomes. And that is 100% okay. I think right now with a lot of social media, we're always teaching young people, all you have to do is try, never give up, keep going for it. But you know what? Some of us are going to have limitations. There's sometimes going to be a ceiling. And in those cases, letting go, or others may say letting go and giving up to God, whatever you want to fill in the blank, whatever makes you feel comfortable. But don't feel like a failure if that bucket is things I don't control. And I love that you have these buckets and you're like, you know what? I'm going to let it go because that there's power in that as well. I agree. And I want to come back to the theme of practical optimism. It seems to me like if you're just an, an overt optimist and you're, and you're not practical, you're probably set up to be not not so happy. What do you think about that? You're doomed for failure. You're set up for failure. You set up for failure because you're in denial. And that's where the toxic optimism comes into play or excessive optimism, where you hope things will just figure themselves out. And really what we need is this very measured, calibrated, sweet spot of optimism. And it's okay to be just a tad bit overconfident. The key is a tad. And I'm going to stress that because you know, I t- one of the principles I talk about in the eight pillars is proficiency. And proficiency is your confidence in your abilities. And sometimes that confidence predicts success, not the actual abilities. And at the same time, you can't walk around not having abilities. If you haven't done the work, no matter how much luck or no matter how much confidence you have, you're not going to get the outcome you want. So that's why being prepared, I love this phrase, it says luck is preparation met by opportunity, be prepared. So when the opportunity comes, you get to shine and have confidence, but just a tad bit more because that tad bit more confidence that practical optimists have is what pushes them to keep trying. And that's why they're successful, more successful, healthier and wealthier than let's say a pessimist because they are pushing themselves, but not so overconfident that they're in denial. So I, I want to touch on the the pillars, uh, but before we go there, you know, a, a cousin of this to me, of being overly optimistic, which I see a lot on social media, manifestation. What's your take? Oh my God. Jason, I can't even tell you the number of times that people ask, and I love that because it's such, I was actually interviewed for an article and it was so interesting to me because to me, manifestation is willing, wanting, wishing, hoping putting things into the universe, asking, making it known. But the beauty of when you make something known is if you can follow it up with A, action, concrete logistics plan, you run it by someone 
or a, a few group of trusted board of advisors appointed, you know, unofficially by you in your life, mentors, people who've got your back, who want to see the best and testing it out. And if you've got all of that, then then it's not just manifestation as in I'm hoping, but it's actually creating. And then also reading the room. So when the universe or is telling you, no, this is not the right time because you've tried multiple times and you need to recalibrate. So manifestation can often fall into that category of toxic positivity or not being willing to do the work. And that's, I see that a lot where everybody wants the end outcome, but they have no idea. Like one of my favorite sayings is it took me 15 years to become an overnight sensation. It's like, you know, Jason, like this amazing company you've built and how many millions of people you impact, like there was so much, uh, you know, that went into it and people don't see that unless we talk about it, how hard the journey is and all the setbacks and the failures that come with it. There's a great Jim Carrey line from years ago, I believe when he was on Oprah, like when she had a daytime show, something along the lines of, you know, he, he believes in the power of manifestation, but you can't go manifest something and then go lie on the couch and eat a ham sandwich. You know, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta do the work. Totally. I'm curious, is there any science that you've come across there on manifestation or not so much? I mean, for me, the science that I did was all around um, optimism. And so if you want to consider that manifestation, that the positive, positive beliefs do lead to positive outcomes, but only insofar as they make us willing to consider possibilities. And so manifestation to me would be maybe the first step in practical optimism. Then do you believe that something is possible? Are you bringing good energy? Are you bringing... So there's a lot of studies around optimism, not necessarily manifestation. That's a different entity, and I'm not aware of what the science is about that. But I, I think of manifestation as the first step. And the, when I talk about the eight pillars, purpose, having intention, being deliberate, being very literal about what you want. And the beauty is that when you can get an accountability partner, that's when manifestation can become reality because you're you're making it known to the universe, but then you're also asking someone to keep you accountable so that your dreams end up becoming a reality because somebody is calling you out on things that are working and not working. So in your opinion, do we fall short because we don't hold ourselves accountable? Is that a big part of the problem? I think so. And I think a lot of us, you know, we stuff our feelings, whether it's like food or substances or distractions, streaming, social media. There's any number of millions of ways that we can um, avoid self-awareness. And the the most beautiful way to, I think, live life is to acknowledge, being willing to acknowledge your shortcoming. And that takes real courage and strength. And I don't think most people, I don't think most of us want to be alone with our thoughts, to be alone with our faults. And that can be hard. You know, I know people who are like, uh, they're in the shower and they've got a podcast going, hopefully yours. Um, they've got music going, they've got streaming going. There's, you know, and they, they're just like, I don't want to be alone. And so the ability to sit with yourself takes real emotional maturity. You know, we were, we recently had Michael Easter on the show, and I love this distinction between being alone versus being lonely. That is just, that is so beautiful because you can be in a room full of people and feel lonely if you're not feeling heard or understood or validated. Um, and there's a line in my book that, that is from a Robin Williams movie where he's saying like, that's one of the saddest things is to be in a room full of people and to still feel alone. And I think, you know, we know, we have, we know we have a loneliness crisis. We know that loneliness is a health risk factor, smoking 15 cigarettes a day equivalent and leads to premature death. 
and morbidity and mortality and not having an intentional people practice, what I call, um, in terms of deepening our relationships, but also taking advantage of what I call micro connections, you know, the, the superficial layers that are built into our day that some of us lost during the pandemic, the barista, the dog walker, uh, the person you see at your yoga class. So loneliness is one of the biggest pieces of all of our unhappiness. And, you know, we're not so good about just being alone, sitting with our thoughts that, that the, we've kind of lost that with the convenience of our devices, many of us. You know, it's something I have to work at. I have to like literally carve out five minutes sometimes just to like sit and, and do some breath work or maybe meditation. It's difficult. Totally. And, you know, there was a study that showed that when people were left alone in a room, it's so unbearably uncomfortable for them that they rather administer, administer themselves like a small, tiny electric shock. Like that's how much people don't want to be alone and are bored and are, and are afraid of boredom. But boredom leads to creativity. We know that there's science behind that. It makes me think, and, and before I we're not going to get on the rabbit hole of the criminal justice system, but solitaire confinement, you know, whoa, that's, that is a tough one. Um, so the first pillar is purpose. Can you briefly walk us through the other seven pillars? Yes. So they're not in any particular order, but if you want to think of purpose as the quote manifestation piece arm of this, but there's also a lot of tangibles, like takeaways of how do you find your purpose. And if you can't find it, how do you create it? But it starts by having an intention of what do you want? And we know that people who have purpose in their life are more or live longer. They have less inflammation in their bodies, but it starts with having intention. And the last pillar ends with practicing healthy habits. And that's the vision, implementing your vision. And then in between, if you want to think of it as an arc of these eight pillars, they can almost be in, in an order where you're like, okay, I'm, I'm setting an intention. I want to reach an end goal. And then this is how I do it. And then the next pillar after purpose is processing emotions. And this is the sitting with it, being aware of what you're feeling, where in the body are you feeling it? I have a quick, you know, little thing in there, name it, claim it, tame it and reframe it. And this is something you can do today. The next time you're mad at your partner or your children, or you're sitting in traffic and you're like pissed off, Naming the emotion, claiming it, what part of your body are you feeling it? Um, taming it, you can do with breath work or any number of other techniques, progressive muscle relaxation, and reframing it is one of the biggest tools and techniques to better emotional health because sometimes in the midst of crisis, you can't reframe what has happened in a positive way. You can't find the silver lining. Totally okay. But when you can, and this is something that I learned from my work with 9-11 survivors and other people who have experienced great stress or trauma in their life, that if you're able to somehow either remove yourself, become objective by asking yourself, what are um, what would I tell a friend? How would this matter in five years from now? These are ways that you can reframe the darkness of and the severity of a situation. The next is problem solving. And problem solving is always happening on two fronts. There's always a battle happening in two fronts. One is out there in the real world, the actual concrete tangible problem, conflict that you're trying to negotiate. And then there's a problem in your own head, which is all the negative thoughts and the ruminations and the pessimism that might arise. And problem solving is always happening on two fronts. So I have a list of questions of what's what are the obstacles? What are the challenges? Who are you going to ask for help? A list of ways, things that I do with my patients in therapy 
Not that therapy is that straightforward or any problem can always necessarily be solved in 45 minutes, but it's an objective way. I say 45 minutes because that's the average length of a session, let's say, I might have with a patient. But it's a way to make you feel empowered that you have options. So part of problem solving is emotional regulation. And part of it, that's the internal aspect. And then because a lot of times we don't even get to generating solutions because we're so stuck in our head. So I want you to work with what's in your head so that you can get out of your head to affect the environment and affect change in a positive way. The next one is pride. And when people think of pride, they think of egoistic arrogance, pride. And I talk about pride as a healthy way of having worth and value in yourself. And I specifically say that I don't love self-esteem because self-esteem often relies on what's happening in the outside world. You get an A in school, you got a promotion, you're feeling great, self-esteem skyrockets. And you lose your job, it plummets. Self-worth is based on self-compassion. And it says that you recognize this common humanity piece, that we, make, we all make mistakes. So I talk about how to develop it, and I talk about my own blind spots um, and what brought me to therapy. And that was a deficiency in that component, and that's something I needed to work with. And then I talk about proficiency, when we were talking about self-efficacy, of you yourself not only developing the abilities, but developing the confidence and steps. Albert Bandura, I did a lot of study studies um, on self-efficacy and there's ways to get it. And the number one way to get self-efficacy is to actually do the work. You can ask for help. You can learn vicariously. You can have mentors, but you have to do the work and sometimes fail yourself. Um, there's a quote that I share in there about Rumi and he says, don't be enamored by the stories or the tales of others. Unfold your own myth. And I really believe that, that you have to make your own mistakes and learn from them. And hopefully you do learn from them. The next P is on being present and all of the digital distractions, the comparisons that we make, how we get stuck in the past, how we get stuck in the future and how to be in the present. And this is the hardest, I think, for, for all of us for any number of reasons right now. The next P is people about meaningful connection and how emotional attunement is really lacking and I see this a lot. And, that, and, and I have to say of all the pillars, this is my favorite because I love people. I work with people all day long. And so this was the dearest of my pillars. I love all of them. And, you know, I think about how do we get more people, you know, get more, how do we create more meaningful connections? And someone asked me the other day, like, I'm such a busy professional. I think it has to do with being very intentional and, and scheduling people in as you would schedule in a doctor's appointment because it is that important is this your social snacking uh concept can you talk more about that i love it yes so bite-sized packets of interaction and you know you have to be intentional because a lot of times people are like oh my god i just saw a co-worker i really don't want to talk to i'm just going to like duck or i'm going to look the other way or i'm not going to make eye contact with a stranger on an elevator or on public transportation or standing on a line and that is such a missed opportunity for an increase in all of the wonderful neurotransmitters in your brain from oxytocin, which is about bonding and cuddling and connecting with people. You don't have to physically touch them to have a really impactful, meaningful conversation with somebody. And so you have to be intentional. And then people that you love and do care about and don't mind being hugged and touched by to make that a priority, to have in-person in connection. But the social snacking we lost when we weren't 
even in with all of our digital interactions nowadays, you do not ever have to leave your home with the Amazon and the Zoom and the Instagram. You can work from home, you can shop from home, you can have food delivered. There are people who never need to leave. And I was just thinking about that this morning about, you know, I was putting in my contacts in and I was like, oh my God, there's 1-800-CONTACTS and a million other companies. But instead I went to the local business and supported them and got them from the store, even though they were more expensive and had a variety of interactions with five different people that worked in the store. And I like loved it. And I was like, we are moving towards contactless, paperless, every kind of less, 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 and it's less interaction. So if you can think of all the people that you see on your day, of course, there are people who are like, I want to put my sunglasses on. I want to put my headphones on. I want to put my hat on. It basically says, do not disturb. And just think about what's getting lost. You are, you are putting a vibe into the universe of do not talk to me. I do not want to be engaged. And that's sad. That's really sad to me. So is that the emotional attunement issue you were alluding to or is that something else? That's something else. Like social snacking, it can be light. It can be superficial. It can be fluff. It's the grocery store clerk that you go in and you say hello to them and they set aside something for you because they're thinking of you. I have a woman, uh, you know, that knows exactly what I want. She's like, I saved the last, you know, whatever you wanted for the day. That those are sort of more superficial, but still meaningful connections. And studies show that our interactions with strangers are actually much more highly valued by both of us, that people rate us as being more likable. There's something called a likability gap. Is that because of the novelty? I think so. Definitely. Definitely because of the novelty and definitely because at our core, as much as you want to put yourself into extrovert, ambivert, introvert, I think people need other people. They need to be seen. And when you have a conversation with someone, when you make eye contact, you're like, oh my God, on a very subconscious level, you're like, I matter. Two most important things for good mental health amongst many is belonging and a sense of mattering. Does somebody care about my existence? And talking to a stranger who engages you, who smiles with you, who sends eye contact, sends so many messages. And we, we have mirror neurons where we're looking at each other, we're emulating each other's body language on a evolutionary biological perspective level. We are affirming our existence and our survival depends on being seen by other people, right? And, you know, in, in, in an ideal situation, not that everyone is always going to come to our rescue and our aid. It says, I see you. If, if needed, I got your back. You know, it's, it, it, the whole threat system, the fight or flight gets alerted when we feel that we're invisible. And that's what's happening when we send these do not disturb signals. I think what you're touching on is really powerful. I'm curious, like, wh what do you think the driver is? Is it for, for people not being, feeling like they're not being seen? Is it social media? Is it the pandemic? Is it cult? What, like, what do you think is the, the driver here? So two things. One is the, we were talking about the social snacking, which are the superficial levels of making fee people feel like, even if it's, you know, 15 minute conversation, it says you matter. But then the deeper, it also has to be supplemented. It's kind of like going to a restaurant and only ordering an appetizer and never having a, a main meal. And so social snacking is just that, right? It's a snack. It's not the whole meal. And what we're also missing, so we, we've kind of erased both things. We've erased the social snacking if you never leave home or everything is so digital and so easy and convenient and you're not intentional and keeping your eyes and ears open for opportunities to talk. But also the emotional attunement piece is missing is because we're not going in deeper. We're not opening ourselves up to other people for any number of reasons. A, 
you don't have time. A lot of women in their in their sort of 30s and 40s up until sort of, you know, empty nest early 50s, they're saying, assuming they have children, but even if not, they're like careers getting getting the way, having a sp- spouse, having young children, uh, any number of things. And those friendships, people move a lot of, you know, digital nomads, people are moving all over the country. So we're not living in our, where we, you know, in the original neighborhood we grew up in, uh, there's a lot of estrangement in the United States where family members are not talking to one another. That was a big part of my research. Didn't end up making it into the book because it was going into the weeds. But estrangement is a big problem. We see that more in the United States. Um, a vast majority of people, I, and I have to look at the exact statistics, but like a very high number of people over the age of 65 are living alone, either because they've lost a spouse or they were single or divorced or their children and their children have moved away. Um, and we're not going deep in conversations. We're asking authentic, vulnerable questions and sharing authentic and vulnerability. So first of all, we're not even in the same room. And if we are, it's fluff. We have our phones out. Then we live in our own algorithms where we're becoming more disconnected from reality. And you can see how things can escalate quickly in the wrong direction if someone feels like they don't matter. And also digitally, like cyberbullying and... Um, just the divide of what's happened in recent world events. Like I want to say in the last five years, so many people because of world events and taking sides and positions have said like, I never knew this about this person. How, how, and then world events. And now we are forced to, to kind of choose sides and to, to declare our political beliefs, religious beliefs. And that has caused and caused factions in the family. Often too, issues are not binary. They're not Many issues without going there are not, are not simply, you know, good good versus evil or, or good versus bad or whatever the, the opposites are. I, I think they're incredibly nuanced and, and that art is lost. Yes, yes. And that and because of that being lost, something called the shallowing hypothesis that because we're, we're spending so much time on social media or on with technology, we're so used to thinking and we want we want to consume our news and information in like 30 sec- seconds 60 seconds and we want to make quick decisions and so we have become more likely to think in binary terms and as a result put people in those buckets and then feel alienated and estranged so i want to come back to the first pillar you mentioned purpose how do you define purpose that, that's a loaded term for many people with you know eat, pray, love connotations, if you will, where I need to, you know, quit my job and go to, go to Bali, which, you know, there's nothing wrong with in certain situations. But so, so how do you, how do you, how do you define purpose? Yes. So, you know, there's so many ways, and I would say a few things about purpose. One is purpose can be with a capital P as in what is my purpose in life, but purpose can be really small. What is my purpose in this goal or activity or relationship? The second thing is that Something I, I read and I sort of played with and modified and put it in my own words is purpose is your soul's way of engaging with the world aligned with your own values, your own belief, your own mission, your own talent, your own hobbies. And what I love about the, the Japanese concept of ikigai is that it is this idea of your purpose, your vocation, your mission, your passion what the world needs, what you're good at, when all of that align, to me, that that's just pure magic. And a lot of people may not get to experience that. I feel very blessed to have been able to find, create, cultivate, design of, you know, where I feel like I don't, 
I am working, but it feels like a mission. It feels like something above and beyond just me. And I feel like that's such a beautiful feeling when you can find something that gets you going in the morning. But your, your purpose doesn't have to come from your paycheck. It doesn't have to come from your job. It can be a side hustle or a hobby. Yes, or come, come from your family, from your children, from, from volunteering, lots of, lots of different ways. I really like that. Are all the pillars, do we need all the pillars? I would say familiarize yourself with all the pillars. And then there's a quiz that helps you realize where you might be imbalanced. And I think a lot of people naturally thrive. And they say like, you know, I was talking to a patient earlier today and she was like, she had a great people practice. She spends 15 to 20 hours a week cultivating friendships, spending time with friends, reaching out, but there were deficiencies in other areas. So it's always good to just assess where do I need help? Because I might be thriving naturally. Some, some, for some people, some things are going to come easier to them than others. But I always say, just get a 360 on where you stand, you know, on each of those. And what do I need help? What do I need a little adjustment in? And, you know, when I was a kid, somebody gifted me this book, Wherever You Go, There You Are by John Kabat-Zinn. And it has stayed by my bedside. And I want this to sort of be a, this book, Practical Optimism, to be a companion by your bedside, you know, metaphorically or literally speaking, that you come back to throughout your life, that throughout the crises, throughout, and think of it as a, as a, as a sort of friendly energy and force that is nudging you towards your best self, you know, whatever that is. So how do we, you mentioned assess, how do we assess our nat natural baselines? Am I a pessimist? Am I an optimist? Maybe I'm a practical practical optimist. Is there another bucket that people fall into, which I'm not touching on? How, where, where do I start to see, see how I'm doing? Yes. So I have 40 questions and each pillar maps to five questions. And I ask questions like, when you wake up in the morning, do you feel energized? Do you feel like you have a goal that you want to work towards for processing? You know, how easy is it for you to talk about your feelings for problem solving? You know, do you mostly feel like you can come up with a few solutions? How easy is that for you? Do you normally have some baseline confidence in your abilities? Questions about people and you know, your attachment style. So that's one way to get an assessment. There's also like an, you know, online inventory, optimism inventory that's, you know, basically it, it gets at in most situations, do you have a tendency to imagine the best possible outcome? And that that's really the heart of it. And if you don't, and if you say no, naturally, no, I skew on the negative, that's totally fine. Pessimism. Martin Seligman talked about the three P's of pessimism, and I've added a fourth one. He says pessimists tend to look at things, at negative things in their life. They take them personally. They think that they're pervasive. They think that they're permanent. So bad things are my fault. They're going to last forever, and they exist in all aspects of my life. And maybe we have a tendency to be optimistic in certain... It's a little harsh. <laughs> it's a little harsh, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, that's extreme, and not everyone is going to feel that way about all things, but you know, there might be, a, we, you might imagine that you have, you might see that you have a touch of it. And, and I think that the fourth one is passive that I've added that as a result of thinking that bad things, like, you know, let's say a person is like, oh, I really wanted to go to grad school and I got a really bad score. And then they're, they give up and they lose hope and faith. And, and maybe they took the test two or three times or applied for promotion. And then they're just like, I'm not cut out for it. My boss hates me. I'm never going to get this promotion. I'm never going to succeed. It's so easy to fall into the slippery slope of pessimism. So the key is it's not just about maximizing your optimism, which are the in these eight ways science back that, you know, I've spent sort of 20 years in some ways trying to understand if I had to distill, if I could codify what it is, because this, the science shows that to some degree, optimism is genetic. 
but only 25% of it is. So there's some genes that people were like, maybe this has to do with optimism. But to me, the most fascinating part of it and what started all of this for me was that optimism really, when it does map to genes, is more about the psychological resources that some people naturally can access. And psychological resources are really coping skills. That's all they are. And so everyone can learn them. And then I was like, oh my God, I already teach my patients good coping skills. What are those coping skills? And those coping skills are about flexible thinking, being able to have a sense of humor in life, being able to ask for help, being able to regulate your emotions. So that's what sent me on this journey. And I was like, we all have the capacity to do that. So if you find that your tendency is to look at something, you know, the glass half empty type, to say to yourself, it's fine. This is my starting point. I'm going to be aware that I have this natural tendency to think of the worst outcome. It's fine. Any number of things, in addition to genetics, can influence that. Your family upbringing, socioeconomic factors. So how does the population split among the three groups? Is there, you you have any idea of what that looks like? You know, I want to say I don't have an exact number, but when we look at mental health disorders, and again, I'm saying this in a, not in a way so that any, so that I don't want anyone to feel any sort of shame or blame associated with optimism in the sense that, oh, I'm just not trying hard enough. Cause that's the last thing. That's not what this book is about of like to make a person feel less than if they weren't already born with it or that they're not trying hard enough. Right. So when, if one out of five people experience mental health disorders, when we look at those folks, they are more skewed to pessimism, depression and pessimism. Go, often go hand in hand. And you might say, well, you know, I have a family history of, of depression or mental health disorders. And that's totally fine. I'm not saying that you should be any, any different than you are. But I would say about one in five people, when we're looking at that, if we were to just take that statistic, we know that pessimism and depression is often associated with more activity in the right hemisphere of the brain. So when they've done functional MRIs, uh, they will show optimists and pessimists a neutral image, and the optimists will have more left hemispheric activity. They will imagine more positive outcomes. If they were shown a picture, the optimist will, you know, let's say a picture of a car accident, the optimist will be like, oh, everything will work out for the person. They're fine. The accident was minimum. The right, the more activity in the right hemisphere is correlated with pessimism and depression. So I would say, you know, it's a small number, you know, that 20%, 25%, but that's just clinical mental health disorders. There are a lot of people who are walking around who may never meet the criteria for major depression or anxiety, but they have pessimism. And that number is probably greater. I would say about 40 to 50%, because when we look at the number of people who are languishing, which is people who are feeling empty and bored and stuck and stagnant, they don't meet full criteria. So I would say about 40 to 50% of the population could is just like, eh, I don't feel great. And and then these are the folks, really all of us could benefit, but I would say this is the folks who would be like, I could use a little boost in my mindset. I don't meet criteria, but if you do meet criteria, get help because this can be one part of a comprehensive treatment plan. So you say practical optimists aren't born and it seems like there's a hell of a lot of the population that that falls into this not born category. Uh, are made practical optimists are made not born and it feels like that is a substantial amount of the population how can we strengthen those muscles you know you mentioned i love the idea of social snacking like what other things that people can do what 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 are other things in in everyone's day to day that they can implement like right now to start seeing benefits 
Yes. So um, the four M's of mental health, I talk about this in the Practicing Healthy Habits chapter. And these are my four go-to whenever I see a patient in my own personal life with my friends. And the four M's are mindfulness. So anything that helps you be more in the present. It doesn't have to be meditation practice, though having two to five minutes a day of breath work could be helpful, but it could be as simple as doing something single-mindedly, doing dishes, just doing the dishes. You're eating, you're just eating. You're not looking at a device. You're not trying to multitask. So mindfulness is about being present and single-minded. Meaningful engagement. And that's where social, social snacking come in, but also getting deep with people, asking the questions about how are you really, really doing, putting your phone away and being open to hearing the answers and being very deliberate about your friendship practice and making it a practice. So that's the meaningful engagement. Another one is mastery and spending 10 to 15 minutes a day. So these are four habits that I would say, figure out a time when you can do each one of these on a daily basis if you have time, and if not, on a weekly basis. Mastery is about, you don't have to be a master to experience mastery. It's about just something that makes you feel energized, invigorated. You feel like you're learning uh, something called a flow state, if you will, where it's an activity that's just enough challenge but not enough where you give up, but it also is like pleasurable and exciting. That could be someone, t- I, I've talked about this recently in the New York Times, um, somebody taking salsa, me, I talked about myself taking salsa dancing lessons. Am I great at it? No. But do I feel in the moment transported by it? Absolutely. For other people, it might be painting, pottery, golf, you name it. And then the last one is movement. So just the way there's social snacking, there's exercise snacking for people who are like, I'm too busy, 10 to 15 minutes a day. If you do have the time, you know, the guidelines are 150 minutes of aerobic exercise, but weight training, I mean, you're the expert, you know, on all of these things. But the movement from a, a brain perspective, BDNF, um, is secreted and you have more attention, more focus, more productivity. What's also really interesting is that people who exercise also have a greater sense of purpose in life and they have found a connection, a huge connection. So if you feel like you're lost, uh, I can't find your purpose make it a daily movement practice. And obviously we know that movement, strength training helps cognitive benefit. There's a lot of value in exercise for a million reasons, including having more self-efficacy, lowering your anxiety and depression. So these are my four go-to habits. If you're going to do anything today, this is what I want people to do. All very helpful. And I think the one place I want to touch on is sleep, because this is an area where it tends to show up. And I would consider myself a practical optimist, probably a blend of some genetics, life experience, and a little bit of work, but it'll show up for me here. And when you're about to go to sleep or you wake up in the middle of the night and you got something in your head and you start to spiral, and this happens to me, not often, but it can happen. And I think I'm like pretty darn good. So this this happens, I, I know this happens to a lot of people. What does one do in that situation where you're just not, in the best headspace to, to, to and it, it's a, it's a tough, it's a tough one. What do you recommend? Yes. So something I learned from my own therapy, um, cognitive behavioral therapy was keeping a worry diary. This was like one of the first things I learned and it was so helpful to me. So a worry diary is where you actively choose to worry. You set aside time for it. And if you're waking up in the middle of the night, that would be perfectly fine to do it. But the idea is, it sounds so counterintuitive and paradoxical. Why would I go out of my way to conjure up all the things that I'm worried about, right? The point is that 
And studies have shown that 85% of the time, the things that we worry about never actually happen. And when they do happen, we are better equipped to handle them than we previously gave ourselves credit for. And so spending 10, and I would say even do this before bedtime or do it in your day, because what happens is, Jason, is a lot of us, especially busy professionals, you're a parent as well, you're going through your day and a lot of us are just on, we're on and we're going from one task to another to another. And things may have happened during our day, the, the little bit of disappointments, maybe the email that something you're working on didn't work out or something happened and you didn't have time to process it. So I would say if you have time before bed and you want to do an activity, journaling in any form, so many studies show that it boosts your immune system, decreases depression and anxiety, promotes cardiac health, helps wound healing. So journaling can be a worry diary. Journaling can just be anything that you're worried about. But worry diary is you talking about your worries. You don't have to solve them. The more you do it, you get desensitized to it. And you're like, oh, I'm noticing a pattern. There's similar themes here. I'm worrying about the same thing. And I would go one step further as to say, when you have time, look back at the worry diary and start writing the actual outcomes. And you'll start to see that the things that you worried about didn't happen. You were better equipped to handle it. And then you become desensitized. It's a form of exposure therapy even. I really like that one. What about, can the diary be helpful if I wake up in the middle of the night and just go to the diary and say, I'm writing down the worry? Yeah, it's a place to park it. And I would say, you know, one thing that happens, which I've noticed was not helpful for me is like, if you're in the middle of the night, like looking at the phone and a lot of times we might scroll, we're looking for a distraction or we're like, oh my God, what did I need to do? Or the problem is we look at our phone because I use the notes section on my phone to write down what I need to do. And if something occurred to me in the middle of the night, if I went to the bathroom and I was like, oh, and instead leaving a notebook and putting the to-do list on that and the worries on that. And then coming to the phone in the morning because anything you you see on the phone intended or not then starts a whole spiral again you touched on a little bit how women are different than men you know women tend to report higher stress levels than men i know this is a big question but why do, why do you think that is what are you seeing in your practice the diff- what are you seeing in terms of the differences between the men and women I think women put so much pressure on themselves and there's so much pressure from society to be everything to everybody and to be perfect at everything. And it is so hard from body image perspective to family to you should, you know, all sorts of messages that we've internalized at a very young age. You should be good at everything that you do. You should look a certain way. You should be a certain height and a certain weight. So societal expectations are huge, but also the way we process information. You know, I think in general, you know, no offense to my to our male listeners here, but men t- tend to be a little more obtuse to a lot of the sort of social uh, and emotional cues in the environment. I'll, I work with couples, and I'll often hear that the two, like if if it's you know heterosexual couple, the the woman will say, "I had a conversation with you know, let's say they were at dinner with another couple." the woman might perceive a slight, whereas the man did not. Or the woman will, ha- will have, it will be so much more in tune to every, and we're also just in tune in a lot of ways to a lot of things in the social emotional realm in a way that a lot of men aren't. So the perceptions of rejections, the sensitivity, and also that, you know, from a genetic and biological point of view, women's survival depended on being accepted by the group and that the group provided for them. So if you're not liked, that rejection or that sensitivity in a group context hurts more. It stays longer more. Our memories for emotional events stay longer. And then also just all of the 
things that are happening in society with, you know, lack of equity in pay, lack of support in the childcare arena, all of that takes a toll, you know, a form of bias. And we know that bias increases cortisol levels in the body. Um, it's a form of oxidative stress when we look at telomeres shortening. So there's a lot happening in the world and all of that, we absorb all of it. And, you know, in some ways it's great because that's why our friends love us because we are sponges for each other, but we carry the weight of a lot of people, especially if you're in the sandwich generation where you're taking care of young kids and uh, elderly parents. Whenever I look at my, my patients, it's always the female, you know, if there's a set of siblings, it's the daughter that's doing all of the labor plus the emotional labor of her own family. Yes, agreed. And I, I am, I'll, I'll add, I am practically, I was, I was going to say I was very optimistic, but I'm, I'm practically, I'll say I'm practically optimistic about, I don't know what gen they are, but children and teens today, women, I, without, look, there are challenges with social media and there's a lot there, but what I'm seeing, I am a big fan of sports. I'm a big fan of the power of of girls sports women's sports and what i am seeing there is just unbelievable it didn't exist 10 years ago where women in college playing division one athletics would be on broadcast television and arenas would be filled with tens of thousands of people uh, we've become big fans of women's volleyball because our girls like it. It's such a great sport and we're, we're tall. The University of Nebraska set a world record where north of 90,000 people watched that women's volleyball team play. Oh my gosh. 90,000. They went in the football stadium. They set, we went to the, the NCAA finals in Tampa. We drove 20,000 people and it was on ABC, showed up to watch the final. And then with women's basketball, Caitlin Clark in Iowa is setting all sorts of records. She's selling out arenas everywhere. The women's national soccer team really made a big push for, for pay. They were being vastly underpaid. And, and what we're seeing with, and I'm just speaking sports in general with, with, with girls and women, is just incredible that people are coming out to see them. I think it builds confidence. I think if you're a girl growing up, you know, being able to see someone as a role model who's doing something at that level of success and stage is powerful. 20 years ago, like that wasn't, you'd have to look at a male. It was sad. So I think that is really, and look, there are, I think it's really challenging to be a kid. I think it's, I think boys have their own unique set of challenges. Not easy to be a boy. It's also, it's very tough to be a young girl for all, you touched on a lot of these reasons, but that's like the one area I am very practically optimistic on uh, girls athletic and 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 the power it has so that's I'll, I'll get off that soapbox but that's so great jason that like like it, it it takes you know it's like interest in women's sports for example will beget more interest because you know somebody recently said and i love this they're like they were talking about research and how very little medical research is being done on women and how you really can't take what is done in the male population. And they're like, women aren't miniature men. And I was like, yes, because we would always say like children aren't miniature adults and they have their own. Yeah, it's it, it's changing. It's changing. So um, it, look, I, I was raised by uh, my mother and grandmother. I have two girls, so I'm surrounded by women. W women are far superior. I'm glad to see that everyone's kind of catching up. 
uh, and they do carry the load. The book, I love the book. I'll hold it up. Practical Optimism. Uh, everyone should go get it. Filled with great research. I'm curious of all the the research you came across. Like, what was the most compelling? What stood out to you? I was so fascinated by how much science there is in every field of medicine um, on how optimism leads to exceptional longevity. They live 10 to 15 percent longer. They are um, exceptional longevity, living 85 or 90 years. You know, I talk about my dad in the book, like perfect health and does the four M's of mental health every day. And it's all because of this philosophy that things will work out. So, I mean, there were so many, there were so many nuggets that I came across. I can't even put a finger because there were things that didn't even make it into the book and there was so much study. I mean, I'm fascinated about society, but then how that pertains to health. And what I realized in all of the work that I did over and over and over again was how actionable mental health can be, um, how important it is to have a sense of agency, I was so fascinated by the area of self-compassion and how much literature there is that by actively engaging in simple exercises, parents were more likely to be more effective with kids if they were self-compassionate to themselves. Students who practice self-compassion did a 10-minute exercise after, after failing a test or before taking a test or people who journaled. All of these little things that somebody could easily say, oh my God, this is so woo-woo, that there was so much science. So like, even though I knew so many of these things going in, I wanted to find a paper. Like, I, There's no claim in the book that hasn't been backed by one or five or 10 studies. And just how little concrete, actionable changes, what big, massive impact they have. And, you know, one thing I want to say in terms of aging is how important it is to do all of these things, to have healthy habits from a very young, meaning whenever you get this, you, you could be in your 60s and you're like, you know what, I want to change the way I do things about how we take care of ourselves in our 40s and 50s and midlife really has a big impact for later down the line. And I see this in my practice where somebody will say, well, I have, a you know, my 75 year old dad, he's isolated, he, you know, or my parent living alone. And how much we need people. And if you can develop these strong relationships and, you know, the, the Harvard studies has shown this, like doing your relationships in your 40s and 50s and what impact they have later on in life. So if there's one thing I want you to know is that you have more, you have more agency than you realize. And that 80% of our health comes down to our habits. And our habits are very much influenced by thoughts, emotions, and behaviors. And if you can really take control of that. If you want success, you have to start with your own mental health. That is first and foremost. So looking great, physically being in excellent shape, super important. I'm not going to deny the physical the physical aspect of when we look at longevity, you know, your muscle mass and flexibility and all of that, but comes into play. But so does cognitive health, uh, distress tolerance, emotional regulation and relationships. So don't take those for granted. Go talk to your barista, build a relationship. Get your worry journal out and ready for for your bedtime routine because I, I know that it, it's 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 going to happen. It happens to everyone. And then I'll throw mine in. Support women's sports. <laughs> yes, and you know their sense of mastery there. I love it. Well, Sue, thank you so much. Thank you. So great talking to you.